Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, Bite Size Edition. This is where we take a clip from a previous podcast and amplify it for you in a snack-sized format. Before we start this episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to ask a favor of you. Please open the podcast app you're listening on right now and hit the follow button. This really supports us growing the podcast and also helps continue to produce high-quality conversations around high performance. You listen to us and we want to listen to you. So please also consider leaving a rating and review. Tell us what you love about this episode and what you'd like to hear more of. Give us some feedback as it really does make a difference to what we're doing behind the scenes. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. In an emotion-charged episode of Performance Uncovered, Jake Bailey openly shares some of the amazing people he has met in his time both at hospital while he was being treated for very aggressive cancer and in his career as a keynote speaker and author. Jake shares how these interactions have impacted him and created lasting memories. Jake's love of life and the gratitude he feels every day comes through loud and clear. He is dedicated to spreading that positivity and resilience to everybody that he meets. Performance uncovered. Jake Bailey, I'm going to ask you 13 questions. He's taking a mm-hmm. big breath in. Are you nervous about this, are you? It's not- I am a little bit nervous about it because I, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go. It's not an exam, um, there's, there's no, Yeah, exactly. I was going to say there's no wrong answers, but, you know, maybe there are. We'll wait and see. Well, if there are, we're going to take off millions of viewers on your, on your statistics. <laughs> <laughs> Jake Bailey, your first question is your favourite song or band? So that, that, this is a great example of where there is a wrong answer because the thing is, I'm, I'm 25. The generational gap between us is is massive. Any of the music which I listen to, you will have never heard of, and if you listen to it, you'll probably think it's abysmal. Are you still? <laughs> are you just, only 25? Oh, God, I thought yeah, you I'm, were. I'm, I'm 25. Oh God, yeah, you are. Yeah, you could be my son. Jeez. Answer, <laughs> answer the question before I fall off this chair. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, yeah, as I say, no, young people aren't renowned for having good taste in music, at least in the eyes of uh, eyes of generations uh, older and more wizened. But I'm a fan of an artist called Kendrick Lamar, who I think many people will have heard of. He's increasingly uh, recognised within the mainstream sort of sector now. So Kendrick Lamar is probably one of my favourite artists that would come to mind, absolutely. Favourite movie? Another one, which is a tough one to answer. I've got to say off the bat, I'm not a huge movie guy. Uh, I'm not sure what goes on. I don't seem to have the attention span for movies, but I'm a big fan of some Tarantino stuff. And Django Unchained definitely comes to mind when I think of movies that I've really enjoyed. How much would you say, Django? $12,000. Gentlemen. You had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Favourite book? Favourite book? Another one. It's, it's a tough one to answer, and there are so many different books that I love for so many different reasons. The first, the first answer that comes to mind for me is a book which I read quite recently by a, a very well-known author, Johan Hari, who I'm sure you will have heard of before, who's done some amazing writing in uh, the mental illness and mental health space in terms of focus most recently. But he wrote a book about... Um, 
about drug addiction, about addiction full stop, and about the drug war called Chasing the Scream, which was a book which is certainly probably the book which has had the greatest impact on me and, and shifted some of those, I guess, preconceived notions that I had around the ideas of uh, mental illness, drug addiction, uh, and the drug war. It's a challenging read, but something which has really stuck with me and which I highly recommend to people. Hearing your answers so far and the narrowing down the difficulty in narrowing down how many books do you read at one time do you read four five on the go at one time because you wouldn't just read one book <laughs> so i when i say read a book and and my my partner she's very very precise about me um, making this clear, I when I say I read a lot of books, I read very few books. I listen to a lot of books. I listened, I tried to do 52 books in 52 weeks last year and managed to do about 60 books last year because I love listening to books when I'm, uh, you know, just driving, cooking, shopping, everything. I always have a podcast or, or a book going on. Uh, in terms of how many I have going at a time, I've got about six that sit on my bedside table in physical copy, get very, very little use. And then I tend to listen to one one audio book um, at a time, pretty solidly. So yeah, I, I try and I try and get through them one at a time. That's for sure. Question number four: Your favourite possession? It's a bit of a story behind this one. I'm hoping these aren't meant to be rapid fire questions because I've really bastardised that format. If, if it's meant to be that, my favourite possession is a mug that I've got. It's a pretty stock standard kind of mug. It has got a teddy bear holding a heart on it, and it says. It says on a heart of gold. And originally when I first got this mug, the heart that the teddy bear was holding was was gold. It's it's lived a long life and been through the dishwasher many times since then. So now it's it's a little bit faded. Uh, and it's it's a well-worn mug. You can sort of certainly see it's someone's favorite mug when you look at it. Uh, the story behind the mug is that a few years ago now, I was really privileged and fortunate to have the opportunity to support a young man called Kane through uh, his experience of cancer. Kane was 10 years old when he was diagnosed with the same form of cancer that that I had Burkitt's on Hodgkin's lymphoma and his family were put in touch with me um, through yeah, through the small networks of, of Christchurch. I met with Kane and his family and and we're really privileged to walk alongside them for for Kane's journey. And he was really lucky to go into remission uh, towards the end of the year. His goal was to get home in time for Christmas, and he was announced in remission at the start of December. Unfortunately, on the uh, 23rd of December or thereabouts, just before Christmas, Kane began to develop some symptoms. He was taken back into hospital when they found that Kane had had relapsed, his cancer had come back. And with it being such a fast-growing and aggressive form of cancer, uh, things were pretty dire pretty quickly. He was uh, hopefully going to be a candidate for a bone marrow transplant. And then unfortunately, there were no suitable donors that were found. Uh, all of the alternative treatments which they tried were unsuccessful. And unfortunately, Kane passed away in March of that year. And he comes from the most amazing family with this incredible mum whose name is Dee. The week after Kane passed away, I caught up with with Dee and she gave me uh, she gave me this mug uh, and, and a card to, to thank me for being involved with their family family throughout that time. And that mug for me, the reason that this mug is my uh, undoubtedly my most valuable position on this earth is that every time I drink out of that mug, it reminds me just how lucky and, and, and fortunate that I am to have the opportunity to uh, to be here on that day. It's one of those things which I think for many of us, you'll have a routine or a pattern around sitting with a, you know, a hot drink and just thinking about life, pondering more deeply. 
And certainly for me, I, I grab my cup of coffee and I go stand on the balcony and, and look out at the world and just feel grateful for the fact that unlike some other people who have walked the same path that I have, I'm, I'm still here and have the opportunity to go out and to live my life to the fullest on behalf of them, uh, given that they're not able to to go and chase those dreams and goals and ambitions anymore. So my, my most valuable position, my favorite position is, uh, is a mug. That's a beautiful story. It's a sad story. You can see the redness in my eyes and your eyes as you say that. How do you process that? Because you must have some moments where you go, gosh, that could have been me. I didn't have any of those moments until uh, pretty late in the piece, really. It's, it was quite interesting going through my cancer and and going through it as a teenager. I was uh, pretty naive and oblivious to um to, to, to the risks that I'd faced really I never really had any doubt that I was going to beat my cancer and survive I never doubted that my cancer wasn't going to come back and that wasn't any you know positive mindset or, or deliberate stoicism on my part it was truly just being 10 foot tall and bulletproof like all 20 year old guys are in other words just being just being naive um, or foolish in that regard and my realizations around how fortunate I, I had been actually came um with another involvement that I had with a family uh, going through a, a similar form of cancer that I had uh, the year before Kane was a teenage guy and there was some some extraordinarily parallel extraordinary parallels between our stories he was also in his final year of high school when he was diagnosed he was also in a leadership role uh, we, we were very very similar and diagnosed with uh, the same or a very similar form of cancer and again, to cut a to cut a long story short, and, and his his outcome was the opposite of what mine was, and it was the first time that I had the opportunity to look at our two stories side by side and to say, you know, our paths were completely the same. We followed precisely the same trajectory right up until the part that his story uh, veered off and and ended differently. And I think it took for me to have those two side by side comparisons to look at a mirror version of, of myself uh, and my own story and to see that it could have had a different outcome to really come to terms with that myself. In terms of how you do come to terms with that, I'm not sure. You, you just try and go on and do the best that you can on behalf of those people who don't have the opportunity to do so anymore. And I don't think there's any more than you can that you can attribute to it than that. Mm. We'll transition to a few easier questions around well-being yeah, and productivity. Sure. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> just, uh, I, I do love this. While it just seems 13 rapid-fire questions, more and more we're seeing, Jake, that the format on this really puts some conversation pieces and you pull on that red thread. So I, I, I love your openness and, and I love the compassion that you show. So an easier question, number six. What time do you wake up and go to bed each day? So I am... Uh, really, and it'll be a bit of a common theme here, I think, around performance-related questions. I'm really fortunate that my partner, she's a, a really high-level 800-meter runner, and as a result of that, her lifestyle is pretty prescriptive around doing the right things um, effectively. So when I am with her, I'm really good at going to bed around 9.30 or, or before 10 o'clock every night and waking up pretty consistently at, at around the same time every morning. It'll depend on whether I'm training or not. If, I, if I'm training, if I've got to get a long ride or a long run in, I'll maybe get up at five. Otherwise, I'm perfectly happy to get up at, at 7.30 or eight. But I, I can certainly see that when I away for work and when I travel, it, it shows me just how much uh, I, I have to thank my girlfriend for bringing that sense of um, stability and, and, and prescriptivity to, to our, our patterns around, around sleeping and rest because I'm not so good at it when I'm, when I'm by myself, that's for sure. What time has Jemima got an 800 metre down to? 
Uh, she ran a new PB only three days ago, three or four days ago now, which is 2.08.28, I think, off the top of my head. So Ooh, it's coming certainly down, quicker huh? than I could do it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And what's a New Zealand A and B qualifier for representative teams? <laughs> Fast, fast. So New Zealand's qualifiers, A and B, are generally faster than Australia's qualifiers for the same event. Uh, we could really get into the detail around that, but unfortunately, New Zealand athletics doesn't back and, and fund athletes in the same way that Australian athletics does. So for for Gem, she'd be looking in the, the low two-minute or around the two-minute mark, but a 208 puts her at, she's the sixth fastest in New Zealand uh, this year, so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty solid result and it's part of her pathway towards where she's going. Are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year, and I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. To explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes, including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout-proof, connection and belonging, that's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on, neuroscience and behavior change, mental skills, and leadership and culture. Or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including a morning wake-up, energy breaks, team-building activities, and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com slash keynotes. Question number seven, your morning routine definitely have a really strong morning routine and my morning is uh, the morning is my favorite part of the day without a doubt when I get up I'll make breakfast or make a smoothie I'll make a coffee and for me and Jim it's really an opportunity to sit and spend some time together in the morning sit and chat and have a conversation open up the balcony door when I keep referring to the balcony it sort of makes it sound like I live in some kind of opulent mansion I live in a very very small apartment don't don't try and get the idea that I'm um, he opens a balcony my... door, his his maid comes in, <laughs> does the yeah, bed, the it's... personal chef brings in the omelette and the freshly squeezed juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is, you've got exactly the idea of what it's like. No, it's... Um, I open the balcony door to try and make the apartment feel a little bit less claustrophobic is probably it, but it's lovely on the Gold Coast to be able to, to open the balcony door and, and let some sunshine in, let some fresh air in, and it's always a warm morning on the Gold Coast. So I love sitting there and just soaking in, in, in life really and enjoying that. One thing which I would note on that in terms of morning routine is that for me, because of a lot of my my work and my um communications and in terms of my work is with New Zealand. When I wake up, depending on the time of year and daylight savings, I'm either two hours or three hours behind the ball. Uh, if I get up and, and I've finished my morning routine and I'm sitting there having breakfast at 8 a.m., it's nearly midday in New Zealand for a lot of the year. And so there is that pressure and expectation for me to immediately get up, to jump on the laptop and to start doing emails. But I'm really, really deliberately avoid doing that as much as possible. I think a morning routine, or at least having a part of the day uh, where you can take some time for yourself and, and for your partner as well, preferably, is incredibly important. So despite the fact that it puts me on the back foot in, in terms of getting into work, I'm, I'm very deliberate about yeah, taking some time in the mornings and having that morning routine. Question eight, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? And again, I mean, I, I can't hold myself up as, as a, you know, the, the perfect example in this regard. My fitness routine varies significantly throughout the course of the year. And I would love for it to be a lot more consistent than it is. 
it's just not the way that it's been for me in recent years. So I do, obviously, with our work with, with Tour de Cure and the involvement that we've had together in terms of being involved with, with long bike rides with Tour de Cure, I also do um, endurance running or ultra running. So depending on the time of year, depending on whether I'm training for an event or not, my fitness routine can look like yeah, sort of up to 10 hours a week of, of training easily. Uh, and then unfortunately for a lot of the rest of the time, it, it's not as active and engaged. And I don't remain as involved in, in sport and training as I would like to. That's probably one of the big things which I need to work on and improve is just bringing consistency to my training and exercise regime instead of having these extremes out both ends. Um, but I, I certainly really enjoy it and, and, and am passionate about remaining fit and healthy. I can certainly tell, as I think anyone that's ever exercised for an extended period of time can, um, that it has a massive impact on my my mental health and my well-being. And you're in your 20s, so you need to just walk by a jeep, look at a bike and you get buffed and your VO2 max goes <laughs> up. Come and see me, young guy, when you're in your 30s and 40s and we're going to get you in the gym lifting more and we'll start doing a bit of yoga. But let's get on to question number nine. Tell me a go-to productivity tip. Yeah, so that's a good question. And I mean, if, if I feel like every productivity tip's been uncovered just about, and, and they're so individualized and, and they're so um, yeah, so personalized to different people. But for me, I always find that my productivity is greatest when I can uh, break down a task which I have to achieve into a series of, and a really logical series of subtasks, which I have to undertake and undergo. Um, making lists and, and putting plans in place uh, is, is the big thing which enables me to get things done. Without that, it would be a bit of a bit of chaos, and I, I doubt very much would get achieved. I'm very much someone who who writes down yeah, a to do list and, and the order of of tasks which I have to to to, to, to go through. Yeah. Question ten: Your most vivid childhood memory. So this was a great question. This one really had me pondering, uh, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think that. A lot of the things which stand out to me from my childhood, as you might expect, really, and as, as I suppose would probably be the same for a lot of people, were the times when bad things happened. It was the adversity which I faced as a young person. And I don't want to make that sound like something bleak or negative, because I think for me, it was the absolute opposite. I think it was the first times in my life when I had the opportunity to learn that, yeah, things can go wrong. And then there's still the ability to bounce back, to recover and to overcome those challenges. Um, so the things which stand, yeah, the things which stand out to me about my childhood were, you know, my parents getting divorced or, or you know, Nana dying, um, these things which are pretty run-of-the-mill stock standard kinds of adversity. But the first time in my life when I had the opportunity to learn that it was possible to go through something bad, uh, to still have a good outcome and to be left a better person as a result of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to look back and be able to uh, to be able to identify those, those patterns. Question 11, the biggest adversity you faced and what did you learn from that? Yeah, so I mean, the easy the easy go to answer, I suppose, would be as we've talked about, whether it's um, whether it's the cancer or, or whether it's COVID. Um, but instead of instead of going for two of those most obvious ones, I, I, one which really jumps out to me was that off the back of my uh, my treatment, my chemotherapy, uh, I was left with a condition called peripheral neuropathy. It effectively meant that I was in a wheelchair uh, or on two crutches for a number of months at the end of my treatment. What happens is, much like in a spinal cord injury, the messages don't get through from the brain to the legs because of a, a traumatic injury. 
in my case, the chemotherapy attacked the, the nerves inside my body. And as a result of that uh, damage to the nerves, which occurred, the messages would not get through or they'd get through a scrambled or incorrect or delayed order. Effectively, my legs wouldn't do what they were being told to. And that was, yeah, it was the toughest part of my experience of cancer or my treatment, um, undoubtedly. I vividly recall uh, being in the car with mum driving me to uh, something called the Burwood Spinal Unit in Christchurch to undergo some physical therapy to, to try and learn to walk again. And we pulled up at the lights outside of school and I looked over and I saw uh, a bunch of young guys on the basketball courts just shooting hoops, just playing, being social, having fun. I remember looking at them and thinking, you know, wistfully, not not um, you know, not not begrudgingly, but just thinking, I don't think any of these young guys, nor would I have known a year a year earlier than now, I don't think any of these young guys know just how lucky they are to be able to have these basics and to be able to do something as simple as go and shoot hoops with their mates down at the basketball courts. And so for me, losing some of that independence, uh, losing that ability to do something which I'd taken so much for granted, which is just you know, ha have the freedom that comes with walking around or being able to go places with ease uh, was a big learning and, and a big piece of, uh, yeah, a big piece of understanding which came for me from from that experience of cancer. And I try and retain that gratitude, um, yeah, since that day onwards. 12. What achievement or achievements are you most proud of? Yeah, and it's funny, as we talked about at the start, I mean, it's the most sort of anti-Kiwi mindset question that you can get. You don't <laughs> you don't go out touting your own achievements and what you're proud I'm of having taunting done. taunting Kiwis sure. who live all over the world now with this question and I love it. <laughs> you are you certainly are. You're a you're a threat to our uh, national identity, I think, the way that you're removing this from our psyche. Um yeah, I think the thing which I'm uh, most proud of having achieved and the thing which I'm most excited about is just the uh, the impact and reach that I've been able to have over the past seven years now. I mean, I've worked with nearly 80,000 people from incredibly wide range of different backgrounds and countries and cultures around the globe, um, ranging from you know prisoners to Fortune 500 CEOs to professional sports players uh, to kids in little outback towns in the middle of nowhere. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of is, I guess, the diversity and range of the reach that I've had over the past couple of years. It's been such a privilege and such an honour. And question 13, what is your definition of high performance? It's a, another great question. And it's one which made me really think. It's not one that I've pondered or considered before. I think for me, what is important um, in life, and it's such a cliche, I guess, what is important to me in life is happiness. And I think what underpins that pretty kind of cheesy concept is that I think for most people, happiness comes from connection and comes from uh, belonging to a group of people. So I think for me, high performance is being able to do what you love. It's being able to do it in a way which benefits yourself and other people around you. And it means being able to be happy as a result of that. I think true high performance means uh, that you are in a good space, that you're helping other people and benefiting other people, uh, and that you belong to something, that you have a sense of connection to something bigger than yourself. Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. 
If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM Edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.